Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. John Wertheim in this week's Sports Illustrated Flat Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Be back from vacation edition, but we are still going to wrap up Wimbledon 2019 in a remarkable tournament, and we uh, are going to do it with no better guest than Robbie Koenig, who uh, a lot of you know, former ATP pro, now one of the best analysts in the business, insightful, incisive, um, says what he thinks, thinks what he says. Great guy, and um, he has a lot of thoughts about Federer, Djokovic, Djokovic's mental strength, the lost opportunity for Roger the women's event, and uh, just some good tennis talk overall. So uh, let's just bring him on now without further ado. Here is Robbie, and uh, good chat to follow. It is, what is it? It's eight days after the Wimbledon final, and I ask you, with a little bit of uh, a time thickening here, Roger Federer feels blank today. I can totally understand him feeling Disappointed, gutted that a golden opportunity has slipped through his fingers to add another major title to his hall and join Martina at nine singles titles at Wimbledon. And I think it's one that he he might rue for, for a long time. I think it only gets harder to win these things as you get older. Anger, disappointment, nightmares. What... Um... How do you think this manifests itself? You know, John, I think it's the worst thing for a player to have match points and lose. Um, I've been down that path, uh, you know, on the doubles court at around a 16 match at the U.S. Open, and that was nightmarish for me for months. Uh, I can't imagine what it must be like in the finals with the opportunity to beat yeah. Rafa and Djokovic in back-to-back matches. Uh, I don't think he'd ever done that at Grand Slam level before. Not many have. Nope. So that would have been an incredible feat in itself. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people wrote Roger off against Nadal. They thought Nadal was going to win that. And they thought 
at best you would get a set against Djokovic in the final. So I think to come so tantalizingly close, um, and he was asked that question in the press, would it have been easier to accept if he had lost 2-2-2? Two, two, and two? Um, You know what? In, in some ways, I think it is a little easier, uh, a little bit easier to accept because when you have match points and lose matches like this, and the fact that it's the third time it's happened at a major now against Djokovic, I just think it stings even more. Um, and I just wonder to myself, and of course these guys don't operate uh, the same thought process and the same sort of boundaries that us mere mortals do, John, right, right. that whether this could see be a somewhat of a decline from here on in for Roger in the way that the 2017 win in Australia was a big springboard mm-hmm. for him to grab a few more majors. I'm just wondering if this will put him over the edge now and see him, see him on a different path. I'll give you two words that I would add to that. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I-, I think if someone beats you like Serena was beaten in the final and someone someone said, well, what would you rather do, lose the way Serena did, two and two, less than an hour, or Roger? And to, to me, it's not even a close call. That someone beats you two and two, you say, you say too good, I'll get them next time, but today wasn't my day. Where are we going for dinner? You uh, You lose – in a, in a five-hour match with history on the line. And you, you mentioned Martinez, nine Wimbledons, but also tw- 21 majors is padding your lead. And, and that didn't happen. But the other thing is uh, how significant that the two words I was going to add were on serve, that those, those match points did not come, you know, in, in a tie break and a guy serves a bomb and there's nothing you can do. I mean, those, he, he was serving for the match. Um, I wonder um, how much that has to do with it, that you, you had control. Yeah, that just adds to the pain, right? That that adds further to the missed opportunity, you know? And it's not like it's Diego Schwartzman on serve. No disrespect to Diego, but it's one of the greatest servers, right. one of the greatest serves we've ever had in our sport. It's been the cornerstone of his game. The fact that he's been able to win... So many matches comfortably in majors so that when he does get to the back end of majors, you know, he's got plenty of gas left in the tank. And that serve has been critical to to being able to do that. Um, so, again, it just adds fuel to to the fire. And, yeah, I, I'm repeating myself a bit here, but that will sting even more. Um, and especially if memory serves at 15 all, he had two aces to go up 40-15, John. So it was like he was in a good rhythm. You've got a little bit of rhythm there. You've just served two great serves. I mean, against Djokovic, it would be interesting if we actually went back in the match and see that if, if he had served two aces consecutively at all in the whole match, um, let alone hit two in a row to get right. him to match points. I'll, uh, I'll give so, you another one. I, I, was, um, I was watching this with Paul Anacone in the studio, who knows Roger, obviously, as, as well as anyone. And at 40-15, so, you know, double championship point, double point to to win your 21st major. Roger hit a, a serve up the tee, and Djokovic guessed wrong. I mean, what wouldn't have even been, would have been an ace by a mile. Well, Djokovic wasn't even close. It was a great strategic play, and it, you know, it, it missed clearing the net by two inches. I mean, it just ticked the net. Um, those, those are, the, if, if this thing is two inches higher, Djokovic doesn't get a racket on it, and, uh, these these are the when everyone says uh, the margins are the margins are thin, this literally is a two inch difference between twenty one majors and a happy ending for Roger and greatest ever and 
you know, tw- 15 years, 16 years between majors <laughs> and, uh, and this dark, dark, deep disappointment. Uh- Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Um, what, uh, what, what about the other side of the net? What, what did you learn about Djokovic um, a week ago Sunday? I learned um, that this guy, uh, he, he didn't even play his very best tennis in the final. It's going to be very difficult to beat in the next three or four years. Mm-hmm. You know, It wasn't the best Djokovic that we've seen. We saw the best of Djokovic in the finals of uh, the Australian Open, of course, you've got to take into consideration who's on the other side of the net and that it's his favorite surface. Right. But I think Djokovic still had a gear, a gear and a half to go to um, as far as his best is concerned. And I think the fact that he can still win not playing his best, playing at you know, 80 85%, just is, is going to make it very difficult for the rest of the field beat him in majors and and it's almost like they, they need an extreme scenario like we saw unfold at the French Open in, in order for him to lose I think he is so clutch uh, mentally it, it, show, it showed us how strong he is mentally it really is just a, an affirmation of everything that Novak is all about this ability in the last what are we now since 2011 eight years right. to be the dominant force whether he's playing well or not against two of the greatest players to ever play the game. Um, and, and I think mentally we learned a lot about him in his post-match press conference. There were some very interesting things that were said. He spoke a lot about visualization and how, you know, in his mind he turned everything around when the chance were for Roger's name. Right. He visualized it and heard it being Novak's name. <clears throat> and, of course, everybody in the press room laughed. Not him, though, because... He knows how important that was to his success. And he knows how important it is to be strong mentally. And you get the sense, John, that he works on it on a daily basis. I think in a lot of sports, sportsmen and sportswomen speak about the importance of being tough mentally. But how many actually practice visualization and mental training on a daily basis? 
I get the sense that he does. You you are stealing all my lines. I, I am so with you on this. And I think that a few years ago, he spoke about visualization and self-actualization and the whole peace and love phase and the guru and everybody sort of giggled and sports and psychology as, as an overlap still has a while to go, still has a ways to go. And it's it's one of these things, if, if you tell me you're serving wide, I can see you serving wide. If you tell me you're feeling self-actualized, that doesn't necessarily, that's not something that translates to the fan. And I feel like gradually he is showing and I, I think that that bit you said, I think that's absolutely right. That bit about hearing the crowd and when they say, Roger, Roger, you're hearing Novak, Novak, that's a concrete example. But I feel as though one of mm-hmm. Novak's legacies is going to be that he has really not just taken the stigma off of all of this mental health and on all of this um, sort of the, the, the spiritual component to sports, but the results kind of speak for themselves. I mean, you giggle all you want at uh, you know health and wellness and some of his mm-hmm. his tweets seem a little uh sort of t- touchy-feely and a little bit out there but mm-hmm. i i think that final i think you're absolutely right and i think that he gave that concrete example of he- hearing the crowd cheering for him when you and i both know it was probably 95-5 for the other guy um i, I think this is really significant not just in his career, but I, I think this is going to be one of his real legacies, that he, that he did not reinvent tennis. He didn't serve differently. It's not like Nadal, who brought a completely different geometry and sensibility to the sport. But I, I think this whole business of mental health is going to be really part of Djokovic's tennis legacy. Anyway, too true, John. We agree. We agree. Um, I, too true. And, you know, those guys, I mean, I enjoy reading a lot of psychology books and, you know, they talk, they talk about it as the principle of universal energy. And, you know, he talks about energy and, and all that sort of stuff. And he, he is able to connect with it. It's very interesting. I had a long chat with uh, Gerard Phil Gritch, who's his physical trainer. And, you know, he doesn't like to do anything in a gym. Right. Little time as possible in a gym. He likes to be outdoors. Everything has to be structured outdoors. Upper body exercises will be things like canoeing. Uh, likes to do a lot of running without shoes on. Feel the earth beneath his feet. Um, riding a bike up a hill rather than doing a stationary bike in a gym. So he does everything that he possibly can to embrace and connect with that power that he that he and many psychologists call universal energy. And, you know, in a small way, I had that when I came back from injury as a 22-year-old and started reading many different books about it. And you know what? I couldn't believe the difference it made to my game on a small scale. So, And I wasn't as disciplined as this guy. I had a bit of success for six months, and I kind of forgot about it. So when you've got somebody who's so dedicated to mental training, and we all speak about it, but he actually does it, I'm not surprised that he gets the results that he gets. Some people might call it luck call it whatever you want, surviving these match points, got a little lucky, but he's got lucky too often right. for it to be luck. No, I totally agree with you. And I think if, if some, if, if Stan Vavrinka says, I, you know, I lost, I lost 10 pounds and here's a selfie and you can see my abs, that makes immediate sense to everyone. If someone says I'm feeling positive energy and I'm visualizing success in, in a new way and I'm connecting with my chakra, um, that's, le- that's, that's, that's less concrete. Um, so someone else, I was talking to, um, I don't, don't want to sell him out, but I do want to quote him, uh, a, a recent, a, a recent top 10 player 
who also okay. he he had a theory too. He said, "Look, everyone knows there is not a lot of warmth that passes between Federer and Djokovic." I mean, again, you see they they played a five hour match, seven six in the fifth, the Wimbledon final. Um, compare that to the the post match, not just the handshake, but sort of the the post match spirit after the two thousand eight final with with Rafa and Roger versus uh, this the spirit the other night. Um, I mean, it's clear. I, I don't I don't know if there's active dislike, but it's clear that there's some friction and there, there's not a lot of warmth that passes between Roger and Novak. And this this former player said that um, Novak responds to that much better than Roger does. And Roger wants to like everyone and wants everyone to like him and doesn't need tension and is much more comfortable when there's a, a, a certain fondness. And Novak is, is much more comfortable with the confrontation and, and, and sort of the personal animus. And he thought that played a role in in the final. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's definitely fair comment. Um, but your American was coming out of me there saying seven six in the fifth. I think John. <laughs> what did you say? Seven six, seven six in the fifth. What did I say? No, you said seven six in the fifth. I thought it was thirteen twelve in the fifth. Oh, oh, oh! Yeah, exactly. That, you're right. Uh, the, the tiebreaker threw me. No, you're right. It was, uh, it was thirteen. Uh, it was, it was. We're all getting used to. We can talk about that too. We're, we're all. You're absolutely right. We're all getting used to this. Uh, uh, it was, it was, was a, a tiebreak no. tie at twelve all. How quickly we forget. But we, we can talk about that as well. But um, yeah, you're. No, uh, no, I hear where you're coming from. But just to get back to your to your point, I think I think you're right. Um, I think almost by, by virtue of the upbringing that, that Djokovic has had where, you know, war-torn, fight for everything that you had. You know, he's spoken about people chasing his parents for money and it's he, it's him against the world, uh, not too dissimilar to an Andy Murray kind of attitude. And he doesn't mind that confrontation. In fact, he almost relishes it, you know, um, whereas... The guy who comes from Switzerland, you know, the perfectly neutral country, much more harmonious. The equilibrium right. is always there when he plays. And I think it's a, it's a very valid point. Um, and, you know, Roger and Rafa have, have what they've had for so many years. But, but you know, I think you even see it with, with Djokovic and, and Nadal to, to a large degree. I saw a lovely montage of them shaking hands. It had done up to about... Uh, 40 of their matches that I played in the early years when Nadal was winning, it was all very amicable arm around the guy that he was beating on a regular basis. But it was amazing how that unfolded over the next, you know, wait, who, 20 who, or 30 who handshakes. Wait, that's really interesting. Wait, who are, you, who are you talking about, though? Who, who, uh, who what, what, what players are you, just to be clear, what players are you talking about now? No, so, so that was initially, you know, when I was, comp- you were comparing handshakes. And right, I was, right. You know, I was saying that, you know, in the early years when Djokovic and Nadal were shaking hands, you know, that was very amicable from Nadal's side because he was winning a lot. But that's changed a lot in the last, you know, 10 or 15 times that they've <laughs> played. The um, there's a bit of animosity towards Jocko as well in, in the Nadal camp because, you know, he's, he's been beating him on a regular basis. I don't think it's quite the same uh, from, from Federer's side, but it's still a bitter pill to swallow for both of them because because of his pugilistic nature. He's He's very... In your face, I think, more so than what they are. Yeah, I mean, it, it is funny that the guy that speaks about harmony and, and about energy and, and spirits lining up is also the guy of the three, anyway, who's the more likely to rip his shirt and, and sort of has these ebbs and flows. <laughs> and as much, I mean, he's, he's more like Murray, where 
um, at least up until the final, he he does not seem like the guy. You you know what he's thinking. He he does not go to great lengths the way Federer and Nadal do to sometimes suppress emotion and frustration. Um, it's all it's all kind of fascinating yeah, it, though, isn't it? No, it is. You know, I mean, it's a it's such a good point to raise. I'm almost contradicting myself, as you say. You talk about this harmonious mental state, but I think the key is is when he when he loses it, he loses it for a moment or two, and then he's quickly back into trying to find his equilibrium again. Right. But right. Yeah, to balance those two opposites is is not easy. But I think he does an unbelievable job of doing it, and. You know, as we both know, I think in 2008, everybody had chosen sides. You were either a Federer fan or a Djokovic uh, or a Nadal fan. Right. And then, obviously, this guy comes in between everybody. So, I think, you know, he gets a bit of a raw deal because I don't think the Federer fans have enjoyed it. And I don't think the, the Nadal fans have enjoyed him, um, you know, coming between their two men. No, I, 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 th- I mean, I think there's a lot there. I think there's an element of culture and I think there, there's an element of, uh, you know, p- people don't have firm thoughts about uh, S- Serbia and the Balkans the way they do about, hey, it's a cute little island off of Spain, and we love Switzerland. I mean, I, I think there's a lot about how fans <laughs> process origin stories, and I think you're right. I think some of this is just timing, and that everybody had already cast their vote at the ballot box, and then here comes this third-party candidate, and it's, uh, you know, wait a second, I, I'm with... I'm with Roger. I'm with Rafa, and and I also always say that the the Rafa Roger rivalry had a certain sort of feel good nature to it, um, mm-hmm. mostly sparked by that. You know, you remember the video where they're both giggling, and yep. you sort of said, "Wait, you you two guys are rivals. You're supposed to hate each other. This is supposed to be uh, Red Sox Yankees, and here you are, and you can't can't keep a straight face when you film uh, an ad together, and it's so warm, and then here comes this." third-party candidate that changes the whole dynamic. You know, it's like having a roommate that changes the whole uh, <laughs> d- dynamic of the, of the college dorm room. Um, so let, let me ask you this. One of the topics that I feel like we, we all love this, you know, we, we all love this three-way derby, and there's so many dimensions to it. I mean, I, I, I sort of am of the mind. I, I feel like, uh, you know, when you call a fancy restaurant for a waiter and they, they I mean, for a reservation and they put you on hold, I, I feel like all of this proclamation and, and greatest of all time, we, we just need to wait until these careers are uh, are all finished before we start making any uh, declarations. But I also feel like the other part of this whole conversation is where's the bench? Where are the guys four, five, six, seven, eight who are challenging? I mean, I think we, we all knew when the draw came out for Wimbledon that, boy, Djokovic is really lucky because he's in the half of the draw that doesn't have the, the other two. Um and so part of this whole discussion about the big three, I think also th- there's an element of what's the problem with the other 125 players in the draw who, who aren't mustering much of a challenge. Um, a, a lot of theories floating around why. Um, do you, and I, and, I, and I don't think there's one answer necessarily, but where, where's everyone else? What's, uh, what's, what's, what's the problem with the rest of the field? I think the problem with the rest of the field is they've, They've grown up in a generation in the last 10 or 15 years when it comes to developing their game where the game has become very, um, what's the correct word? I guess vanilla in the way it's played now. Every single person plays the same way. Uh, the string technology, the racket technology, slowing down the courts hasn't, you know, hasn't encouraged creativity in our sport enough. You swing as hard as you can with a powerful racket and Luxalon strings. Right. And, you know, you, you become as 
beast of an athlete as you possibly can. And, you know, you've got a, you've got a decent shot of having a career. And, and everybody's always scared of deviating from the norm and what is working. So that's why you get what we have now. And I think it's, that is part of the problem with the sport. Um, I had a lovely discussion with uh, Kevin Curran not so long ago, former Wimbledon finalist in 85. And, you know, he often said to me, Rob, I don't believe that the dimensions of the court and the heights of the net in particular was, you know, was created for, first of all, for people who are six foot three, six foot four on average, or six foot two on average, whatever it might be these days. And don't forget back in the early days, you played with 65 square inch wooden rackets that were so heavy. So you couldn't hit the ball over the net with these incredible amounts of spins. So it's almost like a different sport that we're playing from what our forefathers probably had in mind where it was work the rally a bit, come and hit a few volleys and then maybe finish it off with a smash at the end. Um, so I think our sport is lacking creativity and this next gen of players don't have enough tools at their disposal to outthink and outmuster these three guys who have so many. And of course, Nadal is the ultimate beast. So he has become more beastly than anybody else who's tried to play the way that this new generation is playing. So he is the kingpin there. They've got a lot of catching up to do. He's so unique in that department. And in the other two, uh, you know, or Roger, you've got somebody who's just so unique that we, we're not going to see in, a, in our lifetime again. Right, I don't think right. so. Um, and then in Djokovic, you've got somebody who's almost like a hybrid of the two. Um, so it's the situation that is so incredibly um, unique. It's like having three Usain Bolts. Uh, in fact, you might have even used that analogy when we were chatting at Wimbledon. It's like having three Elliot Kipchogis. I mean, at the same time, nobody thought we'd get to Pete's 14 majors for a long time. (laughs) We've got three in the next generation. We have all surpassed that and then some. Um, I I think... I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we also need to say these, these three guys are just tremendous, so... Any discussion of where's the rest of the field, you don't want to shortchange the three guys on top. I I still think money has a lot to do with this. Um, in terms of what, John? I think in a lot of th- I think in a lot of ways. I think part of it is just resources, right? That these these guys have personal you know toenail clippers, and it's it's very when you make fifty, sixty, seventy million dollars a year, and you're not flying coach, and you have a whole team, and everything. Every creature comfort, every piece of science. I mean, Roger, I don't know if you saw the piece that Simon uh, Simon Briggs did that at least Novak and Roger are spending you know six figures on analytics. I mean, they're spending more on analytics than the guy on the other side of the net might be making in a year before his expenses. I mean, that's a huge competitive advantage. But I also think the flip side of that is I think there's enough money so that you can be number 15 in the world and live an awfully nice life and have a real conversation. Is it really worth changing your lifestyle and your life and your priorities and your personal relationships to really challenge these guys? How many guys are there, do you think, in the, in the top 40 who say, you know what, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable. I've, I've got a nice chunk of change coming in, and I, have, uh, you know, I, I get to drive what kind of car I want to drive. It's a good life. Does, does Nick Kyrgios really have any sort of financial pressure to be a better player, you know, he makes $4 million a year by being Nick Curious. Does he really want to change that to make a run at these guys, or is he complacent with where he is? So I, I think the money is sort of a shield and a sword for the big three. You've... 
Do you want to yes. attack me? Yes. Go ahead. I, I, like, I like the way that you you suggested it. Um, and I think your second point is very strong, um, where the guys are making a lot of money. So, so yeah, it's how much do you want to take yourself out of your comfort zone to be even even better? And there's no guarantee that you'll make that much more. Exactly. Is it worth all the effort? Right. So, and I didn't think of that that side as much when you initially asked me your question. So um, I definitely agree with that. As far as analytics go. Um, yeah, where are look, you with that? You, you, yeah, you know, I'm around it a lot. And, and we deal a lot with Hawkeye and have been for many, many years before, you know, Craig O'Shaughnessy used to chat with me about Hawkeye and stuff long before he started doing his own stuff with, with Novak. And I think there's a time and a place with analytics, but in a sport where things can change in every rally, analytics is only a part of the equation. I think we've become with, obsessed with people who accumulate analytics, but there's not enough good interpreters. Exactly. So I think that's important first. You know, who's interpreting the information? And, and secondly, you've got to be able to execute. At the end of the day, you can know that if John Wertheim is playing against Novak Djokovic and he knows that Djokovic likes to serve down the middle to his backhand, you know, if John hasn't got the skill to make that return meaningful, at the end of the day, you can know it's going there. Yes, it, it helps you to make the return. But if it's short and central, then you're in trouble. It doesn't matter that much. It might matter at the nth degree, maybe in a big match. But, oh, you know, you, I think you've got to be careful when you go down the analytics road that, Again, and it's the same with technique. You become so obsessed with technique. You don't know how to manage a shot under pressure. Um, that's a very interesting discussion as well that I like to have. You know, when you get to 20, don't start tinkering with technique too much. Stick with what you can, what you can do with your strengths and weaknesses. Know your strengths and weaknesses. And I think analytics is very similar in that, you know, a lot of people will self-propagate. They, they want to be seen as the guru of analytics, but... Um, I'm not sure that it gives guys like Djokovic and Federer a significant advantage, a significantly more advantage. You know, they've been doing well long before we, we started to pay forensic scrutiny to to analytics, and um, I'm just wary of that. Yeah, I Tennis think you're not, I'm totally with you. It's not a science like baseball or or other sports. Uh, I don't know what you feel. Maybe I, I, I'm barking up the wrong tree. No, but. you're. I, I feel like we need to disagree about something here. I think you're absolutely right, and I think so much of tennis is contextual, and some of it is, you know, where, where are the shadows on the court, and what happened the last time I came to the net, and I think some of these statistics are so misused that, you know, a, a guy comes to the net 20 times, and he's successful 14 times, and someone says, well, shit, he's, well, he should have gone to the net more. He won 70% of his points. And you say, no, he chose 20 instances where he was going to maximize his chance to win the point. I mean, it's, it's so much of this. I, I looked, I had Hawkeye, and I, and I love those guys. I think some of the stuff they have is really fantastic, and it's very clever. Um, yeah. But I also think a lot of it gets dirty in a hurry. That if you, if you look at, uh, you know, I, I looked at net clearance, for example. Which, which players have the, the, the shortest and the greatest net clearance? And yeah. what you realize is... A guy, you know, a hard-charging guy comes to the net and you throw up five topspin lobs because your opponent is coming in on you, and that changes your net clearance. And that may have no bearing on the match. 
um, but it can distort the statistics. So I, I think tennis is so much about context and so much about the matchup and so much mm-hmm. about what the player on the other side of the net is doing or not doing that if a guy's guarding the the line, yeah, you might serve to the body more. That doesn't mean it's necessarily your tactic. You're playing to the context. So I, I think that... Um, Absolutely. You know, so. I, I was thinking, more, more data is always better than less data, but I think you're absolutely right that the application really needs to be, especially in this sport. Um, you know, and, yeah. and a free, and, th- and a free throw is a free throw. So, sorry, go ahead. Shoot. No, I was going to say, and especially in break points, I'd like a category as well for break points. When you, if a person has a poor break point conversion rate, for example, you know, in in those break points, how many were forced errors, or how many times did the guy right, saving the right, break point right. hit a winner against you because I think that is of vital importance because I think it puts the statistic in in a much more clearer light. If you've missed five short forehands on the break point exactly, to break, that's exactly. a different story. Right. No, and that, that's why I said the same thing about Federer, not just having too much points, but on his serve at 40. I mean, that's a lot different than I, I've got a match point against John Isner and he serves 138 and hits the line. Nothing I can do. That's a lot different from uh, – you're in a 50-50 neutral rally and, you know, shank a backhand. But uh, anyway, um, let me uh, – all right, let, let's – you know, the other, th- the other thing I wanted to ask you, though, that, that was really interesting when this discussion about what's happened to the rest of the field and why are these three guys still yes. allowed to ride high deep into their 30s. And so I think it was Judy Murray, and we, we like Judy Murray, so we're going to credit her anyway. I think it was Judy Murray who pointed out that – these three guys grew up before, basically, before the iPhone. And that growing up with, with phones and social media has a real manifest bearing on focus and concentration and that it's not insignificant, it's not coincidental that these three guys were pre-phone and basically the rest of the field. And, I, and I've heard these stories. I mean, I, there's a top 10 player, and one of his coaches says we couldn't play practice sets. He couldn't get through a whole practice set without walking over to the chair and checking his social media. Um, you think there's any validity to that, that the, the phone really plays a, a, a big bearing, especially in you're competing in three or five matches that could go five hours and uh, – Short attention spans and social media instant gratification is one of the reasons these three guys are able to uh, continue to triumph. Think there's anything there? Well, that's a fascinating, um, that's a fascinating discussion to have, and I think you know I'm no guru in social media and and the effect that the phones has, but from what you read, you know, attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter for kids, and and in a tennis context. Um, let me play devil's advocate here. Um, I guess I could say that you don't have to keep your concentration for five hours straight. You know, you're basically keeping your concentration, and then you're playing a point. You've got that downtime in between points um, before you play the next point, where the concentration is maxed out. So maybe I could argue that your your concentration is, is ebbing and flowing in a match, and you're not always jacked up for five hours and maximum concentration. You've got the change of ends as well. Right, right. Just to just to, to tone down and, and perhaps not to have to think about tennis. But, man, I'm not sure if I've got the right answer to that, but it, it is a fascinating thought to have that, that in this day and age, um, kids do not concentrate as well as they do. Maybe, you know, playing in the sand in the, 
in the back garden for two or three hours at certain benefits to tennis players that we didn't know about. <laughs> but, um, no, but you think you think about Roger, you know, I, I Roger riding his bike. It. I yeah. can't argue against yeah, the logic. Interesting, interesting. Uh, just it was a, it was more of a thought exercise, I think. But I know I, I I think it's interesting. All right, we've we've given short shrift to the women. Um, let's let's try to correct that. Thoughts on the women's draw? Yeah. Simo- Simona Halep, uh, big. That's a huge clutch match performance. But uh, thoughts on the women's draw in general? Uh, so many good storylines. I mean, obviously, from you know an American standpoint, of continuity of greatness in the women's game. This Coco Goff is an incredible story. The first week, she pretty much lit up the first week on her own. Such an exciting talent. The poise. I mean, my boy's 15 years old. He loves this tennis. He wants to pursue tennis as a career. Could I even imagine him playing on Santa Court and doing as well as she did? It's 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 mind-boggling <laughs> stuff, John. It's incomprehensible. I think a lot of us um, did the same you know, and thing. I'm a, yeah. And I'm a tennis dad. Right. Um, um, yeah, I think, so a lot of I think us it's great time. for the future of, of the game. I think it's so important to have the Americans do well in the sport, men or women, such a big market. So that's great. You know, probably a match that I don't know how much was talked about by you guys, uh, and it was a match that I commentated on, um, and that's the success that Alison Risk had. That really resonated with me. Somebody who's a little older, really excelling on a surface she deserves to excel on, and how close she was. One of the best matches I commentated, her first match against uh, Donna Vekic, man. What quality oh. from those two. Um, I couldn't believe it. Court number one, she was down and out. Down 4-1, break points to go down 5-1. Next thing you know, she's in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. But the manner in which she got there, that really resonated with me. Big time. And she has since gotten um, married, uh, I'll hasten to add. Say that again, John. She she has since, uh, she, she is still Allison Risk, but she now has a husband since uh, since Wimbledon. She got, yes, she got married true. over the weekend. I saw, I, I saw, yep, I saw those uh, pictures and the, and the dancing going on from Allison's side. Um yeah, you know, someone who disappoints me is Sloane Stevens. I think she is one of the greatest natural athletes I've ever seen on a tennis court. Um, and I believe she should be challenging regu- regularly at the, the sharp end of these of these majors. I think you know, I should be penciling her into the, the semifinals almost every major. That's how good I think she is. So, yes, she lost to Joe Conta. Um, and that's a fantastic story as well. You know, here's somebody who struggled for a while after having initial success in, in Wimbledon, but to come back and play as, as well as she has done, um, I think that's a fantastic story. She got a hard time at a press conference after right. the loss from, from some journalists, but I think they will they'll never understand what a tennis player goes through. I think it's the toughest sport out there by far, and I'll have a discussion with anybody about it. So I've got a lot of admiration for what, what Joe Joe's done, um, Laura Davis. What a good story that was! You know, beating the defending champion early on. The manner in which she beat her, I thought, was incredible. The way she just beat her down in that deciding set. It was a nice little storyline again for me, commentating on that match. And certainly from an American perspective, that was good. Um, and maybe I should ask you this question: Did you think Ash Barty would go a little further than what she did? Um, yeah, I mean. You know, she 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 ran into uh to Ali Risk, did she not? Um, I did, and I I I don't know. I I think there's so much to like about uh, Ash Barty, and I look, it's it's understandable. She hadn't been home; it had been a long run. She'd had this win streak. She'd played well on the grass before. I I don't think there was anything 
you know, she, she should walk away with her head high. But I don't get the feeling she quite embraced the opportunity that was there. I mean, but between Serena, you know, but between not a lot of grass court specialty and seeds dropping out left and right, you mentioned Kerber was was knocked out early, Naomi Osaka out early. You know, yeah. uh, Ash Barty can can move on the surface. She can play on the surface. I, I don't think there was a, it was by by no stretch was it a disgrace. She uh, she went, but I but I think um, I, I do wonder as her career progresses if she will see this as as a big missed opportunity. Um, who knows how she would have fared? I mean, Hollop, I think, deserves all sorts of credit for basically playing as well as she can possibly play in two of the biggest matches of her career. And this is someone who's had some disappointments uh, th- throughout the journey. It was not a given by any stretch that she would come out and, and blitz Serena Williams like that. But I, I think you're right. I think the Ash Barty point is interesting because I think everybody warmed to her and everybody sort of had the same, well, heck, if she can do it on clay, why the hell can't she do it on grass? And she looked terrific for... Uh, for about 10 matches in there. But yep. um, yeah, but these, these opportunities don't come along so often and you, you'd like to think you could figure out ways to win um, matches like that. But, but I, I think those are good. I, I like those, those storylines. Interesting. We have not, um, you, you didn't mention Serena and I'm, yeah, not, no, I'm not sure where I, she I goes from here. Serena, Serena for lost because I think, um, you know, It'll be fascinating how she goes forward from here. Will she play more? I think it's important for her now to realize um, that she needs to play more going into these big tournaments if she wants to win another major and and get to number 24. But and you know, in many ways, I think it's having the humility now after not grabbing a title for a while to say, okay, you know what? I need to play more. I can't just... Right show up to the big dance and pull it off now. Um, And is she willing to do that? Because we know that if she gets matches under her belt, gets the fitness, I think that was the biggest thing for me. You know, the movement was exposed very well by Halep against her. Um, You know, she she was struggling to go coast to coast two or three shots uh, in a row. And and the thing that surprised me, and and a lot of people might not have, have seen it, was that neither player played very high-ranked opposition getting to the final. I think Halep's average ranking of opponent was about 83, and I think Serena was 78, and it might have been vice versa. But, you know, Serena wasn't tested that much. Um, So perhaps in coming up against um, Halep, and Halep playing as well as she did, it was the worst-case scenario for, for Serena. I think the highest ranked opponents I don't have in front of me. I think the highest ranked opponent she had was Julia Gurgis, who she, I don't know, um, you know, Carlos Suarez Navarro, who'd never won a set from her. I mean, Serena's draw was was awfully nice, and she she played herself into mm-hmm. form. Um, you know, she she was terrific in the semifinals against Streets. But I I just think that, um, yeah, I I I worry about Serena because I feel like on grass you don't have to play that kind of defense, and you can. You can yep. camouflage. You can camouflage the the movement, uh, especially against lesser opponents. It was exposed against Hollop, who I think you're right, turned that into a track meet and, and was clearly the more fluid mover and the better athlete. Um, but I worry if if Serena's movement is exposed on grass, where you don't have to play as much defense. I, I don't know what that means for uh, for the rest of the year for yeah. You know, and remember, she usually shuts it down after the U.S. Open. So, I mean, in in theory. She's she's got one more chance, and then uh, perhaps we'll see you in Australia. So, 
Um, all right, let me ask yeah, you one more. Uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. John, one more thing off, off the back of the loss as well for Serena is how that resonates in the locker room. And I think that's often a point that's um, that's overlooked and that more and more players will have the belief now when they take, take her on in big matches that she can be fallible in those tight situations and those very important situations. So it's a double whammy. You know, you lose a little bit of confidence that you can win the big ones, but the locker room also believes, hang on, Maybe we can beat her in these big matches now. Right, right. No, I think uh, I, th- I think Aura is clearly, and I th- I thought the same thing after the French Open. I mean, this was S- Sonia Kennan basically on the big court staring down Serena Williams. Sure, it was clay, but um, I I think uh, Wimbledon represented her best chance to win that twenty fourth major at least in uh, in twenty nineteen. And now I think she's got to figure out what her level of, of devotion and dedication is. Um, all right, so here's my sweeping question. One, one of the reasons I enjoy talking to you so much uh, is you, you have a great sense of X's and O's, and you bring former player sensibility, but you also have sort of a very healthy and I think reasoned outlook on the sport in general and sort of can see um, can see the big picture, which, which not everyone always can. I mean, given sort of where tennis is and everything put together in ATP politics and – the, this ITF madness and 37-year-olds. and I mean, just sort of big big picture. Do you like where the sport is right now? You know what? I'll tell you this. I'll answer it like this. I came home from Wimbledon, and people who would never discuss tennis with me were just talking tennis to me. They were talking about one of the best days they've ever been part of in sport, Um there was a cricket World Cup going on at the same time. They were flicking between channels, uh, constantly talking to me about how was Halep able to beat Serena in a final. You know, these, these aren't hardcore tennis fans, so they don't understand the dynamic like we do. And, you know, every sport has political issues. Ours probably feels bigger to us at the moment because we are in it. It's in our face day in and day out. Right. The guys at the FINA World Championships have got issues right now as well with uh, Chinese yeah, the hammer. who yeah, they right, feel right. you know they feel shouldn't be there. So you know I think every single sport has ebbs and flows in politics. We're trying to shake out some things at the moment, and you know what? It actually might be a good thing in that we can clean up our our act and align things better. We might see it as a as a wonderful hinge point or tipping point in the tennis structure in years going forward. But people talking about Nick Kyrgios, good or bad, I think every sport has a villain and it gets <laughs> right, people talking right. about the sport. John, me and you have plenty of conversations about this. Is it entertainment? Isn't it? Is it good for the sport? Is it bad? It is definitely a form of entertainment. So, you know, yes, I think tennis is in, <laughs> is in it's on a lot of people's radar. And I think that's all you can ask for. Um, how people interpret the sport, we can never control that. And I think if you try and control it too much from an ATP or an ITF point of view, you've got to be careful. Um, I always think in this day of social media, the average tennis fan follower, uh, the average sports fan is so better informed now than they ever were that you can't control how people think. Um, And I think at least if your sport is out there and it's grabbing headlines for hopefully mostly the right reasons, but hey, don't discount the wrong reasons either. 
I uh, again, I, w- I wish we disagreed a little bit. Maybe next time we'll come up with some polarizing <laughs> topics in advance. I had this. I mean, I, you're well, echoing. Well, with well let me ask you the same question. You know, what? Well, it's exactly what the same answer. See? I do these. I do these interviews. You know, and it's Toronto radio or someone. You know, national public radio. People want to talk about. Hey, let's call the tennis guy and. They don't ask about, you know, Justin Gimmelstab's name does not come up. Dave Haggerty's name does not come up. Nobody's caring about Davis Cup formats and this ATP event in Australia. They want to know about Roger and Rafa and Serena and now Coco and, like, what's going on with Sloane Stevens and is Novak going to catch? I mean, this whole big three goat, you know, 2018, 16, that's what people are talking about, and we're all— in this bubble and it's amplified by social media and it's the conflicts of tennis mm-hmm. where colleagues have board positions and you know the, the same people that we are seeing in in the tv halls or in the media also have these appointments so we're probably extra tied into you know the, the guys at espn don't have colleagues who are also on committees that are making policy and i think that and i'm, I'm as guilty as this as anyone but we get so blinded by these this little ecosystem that we forget that to the average fan Justin Gimmelstab and the ATP, you know, chaos the weekend before Wimbledon is absolutely irrelevant. They want to know is Novak catching Roger, and they want to know why Zverev is in a slump, and they want to know if Coco Goff should be playing the U.S. Open, and is she really going to be a future champion? They just don't care about the stuff that I think sometimes we spend too much time talking about um, in our in our little chambers. But that's my uh, I, I, you you and I are in agreement. In other words. That's no fun. All right, okay. listen. Next time we're going to do this, we're going to come up with some real sort of. We we need uh, we need some real debate. This was uh, far too much uh, far too much backslapping. Um, it's always a pleasure. This was longer than I thought it was, always but this is a pleasure, great Sean. great conversation. Um, we will uh, we'll do it again soon. I hope we'll see you. Uh, we're going to see you in the states here, right? You'll yeah, be, you'll I'll, be, be uh, I'll be around the, the entire U.S. summer. It was my favorite time of the year. I grew up playing tennis on hard courts, so right. uh, I love to see how things shake out. At this time of the year, it's hot, it's humid, and lots of squeaking shoes. It's yeah, always a good thing. A lot of melting shoes. Um, all right, this was an absolute pleasure, and uh, let's let's do it again in a few weeks. Thanks, John. All right, see you, buddy. All right, thanks to Robbie. Always good uh, talking shop with him, and we will uh, do it again. A lot of you ask for him uh, when we do guest suggestions, and his name comes up often. Now you can see why he is a, a guest in demand. Uh, always enjoy talking to him. Uh, Jamie. Let's bring you in. You can uh, postpone your producing duties for a second and uh, join us. I want to congratulate you before we talk about Wimbledon or anything else. Can I congratulate you? I think this was your first Sports Illustrated cover story, maybe. Was it not? Second? It was not, but it's okay. All Thank right. you. I appreciate the congrats. Tell me what the first one was, and then we'll talk about this one. Um. Oh, oh, last year, right? Well, yeah, yeah or Russell the year Westbrook. before okay, that, Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you Odell, are, I, I should say, so why don't, I, I should, um, apart from being... Uh, a great up-and-coming talent in this business and uh, someone who's a pleasure to have as a colleague. You are also the doyen for uh, for Fashionable 50 for this annual franchise that we do. And this year's recipient subject feature was Serena Williams. Serena Williams. So lots of good crossover Talk, here. Tell us. Yeah. Dirt. What happened? Um, so, yeah, we went to uh, London before Wimbledon to do the cover shoot and the interview with her. Um, and if you read the story you'll kind of get an idea that she was supposed to arrive at a certain time and and did not and not because she was being you know um just she was just hanging out and she was being disrespectful she literally uh 
was not feeling great and had to go to the doctor right before, right when we were going to have the photo shoot and the interview. And so we had to wait around for her and she, you know, despite it all kind of came, came anyway and, and, you know, put a, put a brave face on and went through with everything. So we were really happy about that. And, um, yeah, it was good. We should say this was what a week, the week before Wimbledon. It was, uh, yeah, about exactly almost a week before Wimbledon. So this is not something that, uh, she revealed, and this is not something that uh, we revealed, but for the record, she did have, um, as you say, a, a trip to the doctor that caused this appointment to be postponed uh, in advance of Wimbledon. Um, how was she? What, what, what was your experience? We've all sort of dealt with her in different capacities and different contexts. What was your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think my experience generally with uh, talking with athletes about this, you know, about fashion or style or, you know, things that are not the X's and O's, they're usually pretty receptive and so she was similar in that way happy to talk about um even her fashion fails in terms of starting businesses that didn't take off you know she was willing to discuss those things and like I said she put on she put on a smile even though I'm sure she wasn't feeling the greatest um but she went through with it and she um you know was very much a part of the photo shoot and she directed you know in, in ways that I, I guess, didn't expect. Uh, she didn't just stand there and take direction from a photographer. I think a lot of athletes are like that, but I think she really takes it to an extreme. If you say to her, boy, at 4-2 in the third set, I noticed you started slicing your backhand. You can see her eyes glazing over, and you can see her losing interest. If you talk about something having nothing to do with tennis, and it could be Venus, and it could be motherhood, and it could be fashion, she blazes to life she so much would rather talk about something other than uh her her day job yeah i think that it's really interesting to hear her talk about how long she's been interested in it and also i think we take for granted how much she actually does off the court i think maybe people um think it's a detriment to her and especially at this point in her, her career that she's focusing on all these other things and doing cover stories and photo shoots instead of you know on the practice court maybe but I just think it's incredible that she can do all of those things and still kind of make the final Wimbledon um, and and you know continue her career for all these years. Her pressures are uh, not the pressures of other players we see on that ranking list. Um, and then subsequent to Wimbledon, you were at the Basketball 50 event. Yeah, so, and so was, was she. And so was she. Uh, yeah, so she came, and uh, it was really interesting to see her post Wimbledon. You know, I, of course, wish, we all wish that she had won. I, you know, I had picked Victor. Federer and Serena at the beginning of this tournament, and it was looking real good heading into <laughs> that final say. weekend. Um, I, I really did think, uh, you know, the two of them were in good position, and you know, uh, you talked about this with Robbie, but unfortunate situation for Federer, uh, you know, kind of grinding it out to the end there. For Serena. Um, two very different uh, kinds of finals. Very different finals. Uh, but she was, you know, she was great. And there was a ton of other athletes there. And this, this was in L.A. I mean, let's this was sort of set the stage. This is uh, yeah, a so few days is, after Wimbledon. She's showing up in L.A. At yeah, I mean, less, less than a week after Wimbledon. Um, she's in L.A., I think she had a board meeting in San Francisco that morning. So she was on planes for almost the entire day uh, before arriving there. But there were a bunch of other athletes there to to celebrate. And, you know, NBA, NFL, 
one of the most interesting things to me was when she finally showed up on the red carpet. Um, all of those athletes kind of came out from the party or, you know, some of them, a group of them and had their phones out and were, you know, sort of elbowing me there being like, Ooh, that's Serena. Like, <laughs> look. And it was so, it was so interesting to kind of see these guys who are obviously most of the time on the opposite, you know, end of that, receiving that, uh, attention to be just like amazed by her presence. I mean, most of these guys had never seen her before. Um, you know, we had, Malcolm Jenkins, who's on uh, the Eagles, he was like, can I get a picture with her, please? Like, you know, I really and he he was posing next to her cover. Uh, I think he posted it on his Instagram. I mean, seeing people uh, like that be so enamored with her, just her presence and just it just kind of shows you how much, um, you know, people really respect her as an athlete, as a person, as a woman. I, I thought it was really. interesting. No, I always think that's neat. I always think we get out of this tennis bubble and in tennis, she's. 23 majors and back to playing Indian Wells. And we, we sort of lose sight sometime of the macro place she has in this culture of ours, not just sports culture, but culture culture. And we, we know her for chasing Margaret Court and whether or not she's moving well on the grass. But this is as A-list a celebrity as, you know, I mean, the, the, the Royals were coming to Wimbledon to watch Serena Williams. And I've, I've seen the same thing that these, you know, Lewis Hamilton, these absolute A-list, A-list athletes still melt when, Serena Williams walks by. Yep. Um, yeah. Did you you interact with her at the event? Uh, yeah, we were kind of just hanging back in the uh, Jamie in the little VIP area. You know, like I said, it was interesting to kind of watch her interact with other people. Um, and she was she was there to have a good time. And I think you know she at the end of the day she kind of just wants to do that sometimes. Um, and yeah, she she said she was happy with the cover. She she posed next to it, and uh, I, I will say that the cover pose and um, the idea behind it was her inspiration. Uh, you know, we collaborated on a few different ideas, but she wanted to do something um, that really was powerful and statement making, like that cover was. So and say she was the same way in uh, 2000 in 2015 when right for a sports for person. A sports woman yeah yeah, yeah. sports person um well congr- and seriously congrats to you that's Thanks. great good for you uh everyone should pick that up that is the uh the new fashion fashion 50 issue that uh jb curated and wrote the cover story so uh that's great um any quick thoughts getaway thoughts on um on wimbledon watching from afar no i mean we said it it was uh tale of two very different finals um you know good on Simona Halep I think the I think you might have used the word nerveless um to describe I mean it was a takedown she's real can I say something too that I didn't say she's really cool (laughs) she's just like the kind of person you want to hang with good people she's I mean you there's not a lot of fuss there there's not a lot of drama she did the rounds after and couldn't have been like more gracious about it she's um you know we we don't we don't root in the press box, but it is nice to see someone who has paid some dues and had some hard losses, but also is just all around good dude. Um, I, th- I thought she really she played great, but I also thought she really distinguished herself uh, in victory as well. I agree that you know we've seen her have some difficult losses and just not able to pull through when we thought she was going to, uh, and and. Now that she's finally gotten that first one, it's nice to see her come to a final and just completely dominate. Um, on the flip side, I was very shocked um, at Serena's just lack of, 
I mean, it, it's it's been a few finals now where there just hasn't been much competition in the final, and I do think the idea of number 24 is is really mm-hmm. hanging on her. I think that that pressure is um, a lot more than she makes it out to be, and it, it's incredible if someone with as much experience as her, as much as, as many majors as her, um, everything she's been through that something like that can still provide so much uh, a pressure and, and that expectation can really weigh on a person. I think it just says a lot um, about the the accomplishment, but also just about her. Yeah, no, she, I, I think there she doesn't always give up much, as you yourself uh, witnessed firsthand, sure. but she has been very outspoken. I don't know about outspoken, but she, she's made it clear that this this Margaret Court – here, here's this woman from Western Australia who's, whatever, 40 years older than she is, but Margaret Court's kind of her new rival. And she wants that 24, and I think it's a silly record, and I think Serena could walk away tomorrow, and we would all say she's the best ever, but she has, she has in her head she wants this goal. She's going after it, and I think with that, I think you're absolutely right. I think with that comes a certain amount of pressure. She's put herself out there. She has made this a target, and when you're two sets away from achieving this goal— um, yeah, you can get nervy. And, you know, nerves, we, we think about nerves in tennis as missing first serves and as, you know, some pressured shot making. But also nerves affect the way you move around the court. Nerves affect mobility and muscles. And it's it's not just how you execute hand-eye. It's movement, too. And I think that when Robbie uh, brought it up, how sort of lacking in movement she was in that final, I wonder, you sure, some of that is almost 38 years old. And yeah, but it's paralyzing. But I think it's a paralyzing. Exactly. Yeah. So, um Anyway, we will uh, we will see what the hard court circuit brings. Um, it's I guess it's, it's kind of interesting one way or the other, right? I mean, if if Nadal wins the U.S. Open, it's right. fascinating. If Djokovic wins again and edges ever closer, it's fascinating. If Roger, whatever happens, um, sort of it's it's worth watching. And then after that, the drop off. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we're all postponing <laughs> what tennis is going to look like in in four years when um, we're watching players who uh, may have won one or two majors competing in finals and not um it's you know going going for whatever we had the 36 combined major anyway um all right this uh that does it for this week again um thanks to robbie always great uh, i thought that was a really good o- owing entirely to him uh really good discussion and um congrats jamie again everyone should uh read your story and see your handiwork that was great and i think Thank you. um no i mean i think you know, honestly i think um serena and sports illustrated have a very nice relationship these days and i think one reason is that um she has been portrayed in a way that goes above and beyond what she's done as a tennis player. So stories like yours contribute to that. I um, thank everyone for all your suggestions and um, sort of your texts and emails. And we should get so-and-so on the show. Again, these, these podcasts are really hard to do on site and at events. Some of it is just finding quiet. Some of it is coordinating with guests. Everyone's running in a hundred directions, schedules. Of course. Um, there's something sort of counterintuitive that you'd think we should be doing this every day. Maybe we'll figure out a solution for the U S open, which um, is easier and we don't have the time differences, but anyway. Um, all right. Good listen. We went really long this week. Thanks to everyone. You can subscribe on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. We'll have a new guest next week. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Robbie. And uh, have a good week, everyone. <laughs>